Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. Yes, he is. And this is Playing With Science. Science. Today, we only have the one guest. He's not a rock star, a film star, or even a sporting legend. But he is British. So not only will he be splendid, he will most likely live in a castle and have an army of butlers, just like everyone else does in Britain. Absolutely. I've heard that about you guys. It's true. Yes. Uh, Professor David James is, however, a sports engineer with enough published work to open his own library. He's also conducted research for sportswear giant, as uh, Gary would put it, Adidas. Thank you. And worked with the world governing body of soccer, a.k.a., I say this for you once again, football. Thank you. uh, Better known as FIFA. Yes. uh, Along with many others. And last year, he spoke at What Makes a World Champion Seminar. So if that's what you are aiming for, then stick around. We will do our best to get the answer out of him by hook or by crook. Um, Also, we'll be answering questions of your own selection and making. So stick around. If you pose some questions, we'll get the good professor to answer those as well. Best introduce him properly. We should indeed, especially since he's one of your countrymen and he's actually coming to us from his home in Sheffield. Fabulous. So director of the Center for Sport Engineering Research at Sheffield Hallam University and uh, a man who has got involved in so many different things. It could take a series of shows to cover them all. So let's get straight into things. And so, David James, welcome to Playing With Science. Um, So as we can all start on a a firm footing, can you explain what it is you actually do? So um, I'm I'm an engineer by training. So I uh, started off life as a mechanical engineer. Um, But what I do is I try and, I suppose, use technology, engineering techniques um, to improve sports equipment. Um, I have a, a great team. Um, we're an academic group, so we, we're in the Sheffield Hallam University. I've got about 20 staff and about 20 PhD students. And um, we look at how we can use technology in sport. 
Uh, we use it to make athletes perform better. So we do loads of work with our Olympic teams, looking at all sorts of aspects of technology and sports. Um, you know, the equipment that people wear, but also how we measure them, data, you know, um, intelligence around training, all sorts of different things. But it's all around technology. Um, and we also look at how we can prevent injuries and actually make sport more accessible for people. So it's not just the elite, but actually how you can use design and innovation to encourage um, you know, physical activity and participation in sport, which is a massive, massive issue you know, for, for the health and happiness of our, our populations as well. I told you it was a series, didn't I? I, I? You've got your engineering tentacles <laughs> in every single area of sport, where, where no matter where it is. Yeah, um, okay, so do you design, create, and create original features yeah. or, um, or are you one of those groups that kind of someone like adidas or any other body comes and say this isn't working as well as it should help yeah a bit of both a bit All of right. both actually so um we do a lot of um sometimes we work before the design moment happens so we'll be so take what we do with adidas so we're trying to understand um how different pl players in, in, say in soccer move differently on different surfaces whether they're playing on synthetic turf or natural turf or or the new hybrid turf yeah um, and and actually that what that does is that that provides information for the design team to come up with products to best match the shoe with the movement on the surface mm. so sometimes we do the very sort of fundamental research to give the ideas for for the design work um, figuring out, yeah, so how does this person move? What are they like? What are the conditions like? Equally, we also get involved sometimes when the product's being made and we test it to see, well, does it really work? Does it make any difference? You know, does it increase injury risk? Does it, does it do these different things? So often we're about the ideas, the inspiration for the designs and the testing. Um, and sometimes we do the design work ourselves as well. But actually, companies are quite good at that. Um, so as a university, we're more like a knowledge partner. So I read that uh, you guys worked with Amy Williams. Uh, she's a British skeleton, right? She's a yeah, gold skeleton. medalist yeah, skeleton, yeah, yeah. British yeah, skeleton in Vancouver. Yeah, Winter and, Olympics. And she, in Winter Olympics, and she was like 143 uh, kilometers per hour is what she hit as a top speed. What did you guys do with her? Because I, I couldn't find exact – I knew that I, – I found that you were – that you had worked with her, but I couldn't find what exactly did you yes, do? This is, um, this, is a, this is an interesting story, this actually. So um, it's kind of amazing the what Team GB, so Team Great Britain, um, how they've done very well in the Olympics in, in recent uh, years. Bearing in mind, um, in, in the Olympic Games in Atlanta, the Summer Olympics, we got just one gold medal. Um, you know, we were like bottom of the, the medal table and obviously in... Uh, in Rio, you know, we, we were second in the medal table, did incredibly well. Uh, and that, that's a huge transformation. So the whole high performance system has, has changed. And technology has been a key part of that, that story. Um, in, the, in the skeleton bob, this one was actually a bit controversial because um, there are certain rules around what you can and can't do. And um, we, we kind of, you know, we, we, we push things right up to the limit of what the rules say you can do in terms of the design. I read that other teams, of, of course USA, because you know when the USA loses, they're just like, something's terribly, terribly wrong. How is it that we, we can't lose? Anyway, mm -hmm. um, so not just Team USA, but a couple other teams were saying that 
there was a controversy surrounding her skin suit and that her yeah, skin suit yeah, gave her an unfair advantage. How so? So the, the rules on the skin suit weren't particularly clear. Uh, they were a little bit ambiguous mm-hmm. and were open to debate about what you could and couldn't do. But, but essentially we had, um, it's kind of hard to describe, but, but the, from the helmet, we had part, part of her skin suit kind of, uh, there's a bit of structure to her shoulders. Oh. So it kind of gave this nice profile from her head to her shoulders. Brilliant. Which, which provided a fantastic, well, you know, a small aerodynamic advantage. Right. And um, it wasn't overly clear if that was allowed or not in the rules. Um, and some other teams didn't like it. Uh, well, the, l- losing teams never like it. Let me just um, say this, uh, David. Um, if Team USA uh, bitched about that, that is the most un-American thing you could do because there is nothing more American than taking ambiguous rules and using them to your advantage. <laughs> that's what we do. That's, that's, that's you know, it, I, I believe in, you know, fair sport, good competition, but actually the modern, modern world of sport, you know, pushing things to the limit um, within the rules is what, is what you do. Right. You're there to win. You're not there to, you know, okay, look, I, I have quite strong feelings on this, but but sport isn't a level playing field. Athletes can get up in the morning to be better than their opponent. They want to train harder, get the right advice. It's all about getting an advantage. And the modern sports person really has to you know, think of the whole picture and push things to, to the limit whilst not stepping over that limit. Cool. What's your favorite project? What's the favorite project for you that you've been involved in and found successful? Okay, that's uh, that's good actually. I, I really like that. So one of my favourite projects was um, working on goal line technology. Oh gosh, yep. With um, with with FIFA, um, that's been a great a great fun thing to do. So um, yeah, I, I, I worked with FIFA, helping them to basically decide whether goal line technology should be used in soccer. So this is a system which tracks where the ball is mm-hmm. um, in a soccer match, and it basically tells the referee if it's a goal or not. So that's been a great project, actually. And so it's been really good to see a very sophisticated technology be, be introduced into the sport and actually change the culture of the sport because soccer has always been quite resistant to technology. Yeah. And I think mm. it's, um, it's really changed now, actually. And uh, that's been a great, great journey to be part of. So speaking of measurements and, you know, this goal line technology, uh, let's kind of need that dough and push it out to all other sports. Because if you think about the one thing that is common in all the sports is there's a human being who's making a judgment call about a ball. Uh, Did that ball go over the plate? Is it a strike or a ball? Did that ball actually cross the line? Is it a goal? Did that football break the plane? Is it a touchdown? So, uh, when you, when you look at that, uh, If you were to make that measurement so that there was no need of a referee, do you think that's a good thing for sports or a bad thing for sports? Well, it's difficult, really. I think in for some for some sports at the top top levels, the the um, frankly, if you just look at the finance of it, you know, getting a decision wrong (laughs) can cost hundreds of millions of pounds. Yeah, and it's. It's really, it's, you know, it's fundamentally unfair, I think, to have a decision that's, that's wrong be implemented because it can totally change people's futures. Uh, you know, whole cities can be affected by that. If your team goes up or goes down, True. that's got massive implications. So some decisions are so important, they just have to be right. 
and you can see that you know in World Cups as well. It's maybe the money's not so important, but it's 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 a massive massive thing. You have to get it right. So I think for that, I think technology has a very good role to play. Um, however, the, the, the concern is that technology comes at a price and a cost, and um, actually at the lower levels of the sport. Um, they might not be, ever be able to afford this. And so what that can do is it can actually pull the sport apart a little bit. You have different rules for the elite to sort of everyone else. And right. that's the challenge because, you know, the idea is that someone who plays football or baseball, they're playing the same sport as their, their idols, the pros. Right. You know? um, so it should be one sport, not, not different, different forms of the sport for different structures of the game. So that's, that's the real challenge. But, you know, technology is getting cheaper. Um, you know, camera technologies, mobile technologies, computer technologies, it's all getting cheaper. And as the systems get more developed and you get more companies in the game, prices will come down. So hopefully we'll, you know, it'll become more open to everyone else. Maybe the two of you can explain something to me because you just said like whole cities, their fate can be determined. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now we're not used to this here in America. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I just found this out this weekend um, at, that when a soccer team or football team, like, okay, let's say Manchester United or, you know, Crystal Palace, whoever, when they win or lose, they can go up or down in standings that can get them put in or kicked out of a league. Yeah. So, so I, oh my God, this is insane. Who knew this? I'm telling you. So in football, <laughs> in football, it's completely socialistic. Okay. You can lose every single game and you are still in the NFL. It's called the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> That's correct. So, but so how's it working? How does, how does this work? Oh man, it's, it's frightening. It's like, Professor, if you don't mind, yeah. you start August, you end in May. It may, if you finish in the bottom three uh -huh. of the Premier League, right. your history, you get relegated to the division below. Oh, my God. This is what the professor means when he says whole, whole cities. cities. Oh, my yeah. God. And, you know, if you lose one game, well, okay, you don't, you don't like it, but you get on to the next one. But if you've been so bad and you finish in that bottom three, you're out of here. Now, you can imagine that in a World Cup. It's not just a city or a club. Right. It's a whole country. Oh. Can you imagine if it got robbed of a World Cup in the final? <gasps> Oops. Uh, <laughs> so it, the, 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 the way, the, once you drop that pebble in the pond, the ripples can be enormous. Wow. Such ramifications. Wow, and so I think I think it's interesting. The the um, you know this I mentioned about cities. So it's interesting in the UK that a, a really good sort of soccer team can really put your city on the international map. Um, so you know when I travel around the world, I say yeah, I'm from Sheffield. People say, well, what, where's Sheffield? And I say, oh, it's next to Manchester. And a lot of people know about Manchester because they know about Manchester United and Manchester City. Hmm. Pretty much anywhere I go in the world, it, you know, really, um, you know, throughout Africa and all over, people, oh yeah, I know Manchester, 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 and so it really affects the the, the standing or, or or how people view your city. So right. it has it has very deep, profound effects. These these decisions and Sheffield and being in the really Premier League city. puts you in that top flight. So you have two big soccer teams: Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday. Don't ask me about the Wednesday. Well, Sheffield Wednesday. Yes. Um, <laughs> Is that anything like Taco <laughs> Tuesday? <laughs> We'll talk. Um, then you have the Sheffield Steelers, which is a hockey team. Then you have the Don Valley Stadium, which is track and field. 
Um, not sure about basketball, but I'm thinking there is one. But that's about, so it's it's known as the Sheffield Sharks. Thank you, Sheffield Sharks. So you've got uh, you've got a lot of sporting excellence in this area, as well as the good professor. And he's he doesn't have an army of butlers. He has a team. A, an army of PhDs. Yes, an army of PhDs oh, and PhD students. I mean, he's just seen my butler and raised me an army of PhD graduates. Right, we are going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, more with, I'm going to call him a sports engineer, but it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't cover anywhere near the work that he does. But Professor David James will be with us when we get back. Sleep. Grocery shopping themselves. Just a few things working moms seldom have time for. And during tax season, you can add taxes to their list. So for all you working moms, make the easy switch to H&R Block and have an expert make easy work of your taxes. H&R Block guarantees your taxes are 100% accurate and your max refund or your money back. Plus, with their no surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even have an H&R Block tax pro do your taxes in a block office or online from the comfort of your own home. Can your current tax guy promise all that? When you're buried under life's to-dos, let the experts at H&R Block stay on top of your taxes with a return that's right on the money and your biggest refund possible. Because tax season after tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Descriptions of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome back to Playing With Science. Uh, this is a fabulous conversation that Chuck and I are enjoying immensely with sports engineer David James Professor from Sheffield Hallam University in delightful Britain, or we call it England, really. You sound uh, a little homesick, my friend. I know, I'm getting teary. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I said earlier on in the show that you spoke at a seminar about what makes a world champion. So, Professor, you're up. What makes a world champion? Is there a secret? Um, I think good athletes make world champions. Yeah. I think, you know... Um, Sometimes we get a little bit obsessed by the things that are going on behind the scenes, you know, the science, the engineering, the technology. Maybe we can make 
a champion, but actually it's the it's the individual. And um, if you think about all athletes, great athletes, world-beating athletes, they're, they're extreme outliers. Um, they're not normal. They, they, they literally have bodies which are on the edge of, of, of normality. Mm-hmm. Um, they really are outliers. So you, you have a, a brilliant kind of body to begin with uh, and mind uh, and ability. So the athlete's at the core of it. But, but that isn't nearly enough. You know, and we know that um, basically great, um, great athletes are made mainly sort of by three, three key components, talent. So that's the key thing, you know, what you're born with, um, the, the sort of the environment which that talent is then nurtured in. Yeah. And that comes from, you know, lots of things like, you know, did your mum and dad drive you to basketball kind of classes or whatever it is or the team team meets on a Wednesday evening or did they did they get up early in the morning at 5 a.m. to take you to swimming you know they, those kind of environmental things are massively important so champions are, are a product of that system often by their parents and what the parents have, have, have given them when they were when they were younger and then I get in, people like me get involved later on when you've got someone who's who's already very good uh, we can then work with them a little bit to get them that tiny bit more. So what I do as a, an engineer, I'm never going to turn someone who's not good at sport into someone who's a world champion. They have to be very good already. We can make very small changes uh, at the end, small small savings in time, a little bit, you know, uh, in, in enhance their skills in some way through maybe virtual reality or different types of techniques. Improve strategy. We can do those kind of things, but you have to ha- you have to be very good to begin with. Um, and I think the third thing. So I mentioned two things: talent, um, opportunity. Well, so the environment, uh, or, or maybe you might consider the opportunity. Um, and then the, the, the third thing would be the the drive from the individual. So the um, you know that personal resilience to keep going when it's tough, um, and that personal drive. And that, I think. When, when you're thinking about um, sort of a, maybe a national level, how do you come up with a great Olympic team? In a way, we can we can identify talent quite well. It's not precise science, but we can we're pretty good at picking out people who are going to be good. We can provide the right environment, but it's very hard to identify people who have got those really strong motivations, that 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 willpower to do it. That's the kind of the the guesswork, uh, and some people have it, and some people don't. And um, the the best athletes have got all three. They've got that talent. They've had the opportunities, and they've got that drive as well. LeBron so I James. think it's those three things that make a world champion. Yeah, yeah. People yeah. like LeBron James who just tick that box and have that X factor. Uh, I mean, there there is one of your published works. Uh, the physics of winning because I'm just you're, you're trying to remember your own works now aren't you you've done that many um, I'm just thinking you've been at, you've, you've had your whole team of PhD students and graduates and you've sat them down to come up with an equation so you've, you've kind of got your own equation for winning in physics but is it quite that simple or, or how did you approach something with the, that kind of title yeah I think um, so this is um, this is the difference. So some sports are quite simple in a way. Yeah. So we call them, I, I call them linear sports, like, um, in a way, like running a hundred meters or, um, jumping the pole vault or a high jump or, or, or riding a bike around a track. 
basically those sports are measured by a single outcome, which is a time or a distance or a height, you know, and, and actually you can break that sport down into a number of key elements like, okay, I need to have so much power delivered at this time. And I know I can deliver that amount of power out of my body. Um, and that will achieve this speed on the bike if I optimize the bike. And you can basically make a very good prediction of what will happen. And so that's why the physics come in, because it's about the energy that the human body has and then, and then understanding how we use that energy to get what we need to get done. You know, we can tweak things like the aerodynamics on the bike or the body position on the bike and things like that to, to do it. So it's, I'd say it's very deterministic. Mm. Like, in a way, I can predict what's going to happen to within a sort of a fraction of a second. And then when the athlete goes to do it, they'll do that. Take a sport like soccer, you know, baseball, American football. We can't do that. No. We can't make predictions because you might have a plan. Yeah, I'm going to do this. But what's the opponent doing? Mm. And, and then what are, the, what are the interactions with the team? So we can use physics and mathematics to describe what will happen in sport in these very linear, simple sports, which are measured, often measured in time or height or distance. When it comes to, to sort of sports, which are games, which have multiple players, um, all bets are off. It's, it's too complicated a system to, uh, to try right, to but, model. So thank you for explaining that. Um, you've done work with wearable tech, not just the sort of telemetrics tracking sort of thing, but... And then you've gone on to discuss how it can prevent injury and you're analyzing impact. Can, can you expand on that a little bit more and exactly what areas you were working in? Yeah, so we, we did um, uh, a project recently with, um, with FIFA, um, the, the governing body for, for soccer, yeah. football. And um, they, so it, we see this loads now where players are wearing um, devices, tracking devices. Yeah. Um, often they use like a GPS satellite type tracking technology, but they, there are many other technologies as well. Um, they have other sensors in them as well, like um, we call them inertial sensors. So they've got accelerometers, rate gyros, magnometers, these kind of different devices to, to measure what you're doing. Um, the trouble with these devices is you have to wear them. And um, there's actually a potential risk of injury when you're wearing them. Hmm. So um, often these devices are worn at the top of the back. Yeah. Um, and, you know, dare I say it, they're, they're there to get good satellite coverage. So the satellite can see it very easily. Hmm. It's not a bad place to put it because you don't see many collisions. But putting something on your spine, a hard object on your spine, in a, in a potentially, you know, violent uh, environment like... Well, what, uh, what could go wrong? Come on, Siri. What could seriously go wrong? You've got a big hard thing on your back, right? right? I mean, come on, what could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think there are... So we, we did this big study for, for soccer and um, we tried to understand what the injuries could be uh, as players are wearing these devices and we surveyed lots of medics and players who are wearing them um, and we sort of identified these sort of injury scenarios and then basically what we did was we um, by kind of recreating that those impact events that we see in sport we were able to improve the design of these uh, these devices and actually as a sort of a basically a, an impact test that they all have to pass now to be to be deemed to be safe or safe enough I said before like we can't ever make something 100% safe but we can reduce its risk of injury 
Um, I think it's really interesting and the, the, the NBA are doing exactly the same thing. I think it's even worse in basketball because you've got players potentially you know, landing on a hard court. Yeah. They've got this hard device on their back. Um, okay, at the best, it might cause just a little laceration or a bruise, but at its worst, it could be, could be worse. Yeah. So it's well, something that's being looked at quite a lot. Unless you're a delicate flower like me, in which case it would be absolutely devastating. Oh, gosh. Time to take another break after you've said that. Um, right, don't go away, Professor, because you are going to be back when we get back and we will have cosmic queries here on Playing With Science and our sports engineering show. So uh, don't go away. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome back to Playing With Science and our sports engineering show with yes. the wonderful Professor David James. And as promised, it's time for a cosmic query and your question. So uh, Jay Bailey, uh, who is a Patreon patron, which means that we're going to start with his uh, Jay's, because Jay could be a male or a female. We're going to start with Jay's question. Because if you support us on Patreon, uh, that's what happens. We give you a priority. Uh, my roller derby coach once commented that if humans were made to skate, our ankles would be on the front of our foot. <laughs> I'm still a little puzzled about that. But what other changes to the human design could you imagine that would make human bodies more efficient for quad skates? What changes would you make for a roller skate? Uh, and it is Janelle. So Janelle is probably a girl from Chicago. Uh, what a what a wonderfully weird question, Professor. I think it's actually there's, there's some really interesting stuff in that question. Okay, actually. Um, sort of. I think the, the first thing is that got the idea of having sort of a basically like an articulated joint on the front of the skate, uh, like an ankle, is of course something which is done in speed skating. So um, in the 1980s, we had the uh, the clap skate. So this is a, a device which is a, 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 it's speed skating. You know, it's, it's very big in the Netherlands uh, yeah. in the Winter Olympics. And the, the clap skate is a classic bit of fantastic sports engineering where actually by putting that extra joint in at the front. So it's basically what happens is that at the toe, the, the, the shoe can lift off the, the, the hard skate, which remains on the surface. And it just subtly changes the, um, the biomechanics of, of the motion and what that can do is it can actually improve the efficiency of, of the athlete and the people who wear cl clap skates can go you know quite a bit faster using less energy so, so it's not a crazy power idea to be delivered to the skates but of course you know if you think about the animal kingdom plenty of animals have quite interesting locomotion if you think about birds or ostriches have kind of almost like a reverse knee yep. um, and they can run very fast as well so yeah it's quite interesting to think about different ways of being that's a great question, Janelle. Way and now, to go. And then we've got a great answer. And, and yeah, those skates sound just perfect for me in the winter. This is Noah, Noah, 21 from Instagram, who says, what is the comparison of head injuries in football versus rugby? And I'll include soccer into that. So your football. Uh, yeah. um, 
uh, such as the severity of chances of having a head injury. Also, uh, do the use of pads and a helmet in American football contribute to higher chances of injuries solely because of the hard material? So a lot of a lot of stuff packed into one question. You can unpack it any way that you want. But, you know, do you have any um, information on the comparison of head injuries uh, for American football, um, your football, soccer and uh, perhaps rugby? Yeah, so I think um, look, this is probably the biggest topic facing um, sport at the moment in, in my world, this whole topic of concussion. Um, you know, it's particularly relevant well across the whole, all sports, all three of those sports, soccer, rugby and, and American football. I think the, um, if I was to rank them, it seems, you know, in the data, American football seems to be the worst. Rugby would be second and soccer would be in third place. So most of my work has been around soccer and rugby uh, from the UK. We, we don't get much work in American football, but obviously that you know we, we follow what's happening there. I think um, it's interesting. I do quite a bit of work with rugby, and um, rugby have been very um, cautious about, I suppose, allowing athletes, players, to wear head protection or shoulder protection because they worry that it will change the playing behaviour of players. So players will be more aggressive when they go into tackles uh, rather than actually trying to protect themselves. Um, however, that is changing. Um, and actually, World Rugby, who are the governing body of rugby, they're, they're introducing potentially uh, like some, some head protection now. Um, it's kind of coming in. They're going to legislate for that. And shoulder pads as well. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a controversial issue, though, because they are worried that if um, players wear this protection, they'll become more aggressive. And that might lead to injuries. So it will change the playing behavior. And I think that's what, when we look at American football, that's what we see. We see actually, because of the equipment they're wearing, it allows this potentially quite dangerous behavior to take place on the field. Um, so, that's, so that's a really kind of delicate, um, delicate balance at the moment. So World Rugby are introducing uh, this idea of some head protection and shoulder protection. And um, lots of researchers are going to be studying how that actually changes behavior in the game um but you know there's there's quite a lot of regulations around it already um if you take the compared to soccer okay so uh, in, in soccer this is also a topic actually um particularly around this concept of um, heading a ball so when you've got a, the football coming coming across and players head it um there's a lot of talk now about you know can this lead to dementia in, in older life or, or mental health issues i think that's very not very well understood at all, actually. And I know in, in America, um, I think you've banned um, young players from heading footballs in, in training academies. I think that's true. And yeah. we've been thinking about that. What's the science for that? Is it valid? Is it not? I'm, you know, it's difficult because when you head a football, it's not a concussive injury, you know, right. it, um, or it's a, what you call a sub, sub-concussive injury. But the idea is it's these repetitive, right. low-level impacts that over time may cause, in, you know, uh, an injury. But that's very, very hard to measure or understand and track. So, so yeah, the science I, there is not very well understood at all. Rugby in a better place, but I think certainly um, American football is where it's really happening. At the moment. Yeah, and those are some interest, interesting things that you point out. One, uh, one we see in American football that there is indeed a um, – a, a different playing culture because of the helmets and the pads. And so one of the things that has been instituted this year in American football is the NFL leading with your head or leading with your helmet, 
when you are tackling, especially the quarterback, is now a penalty. Uh, you know, also um, when you when a player is what they call vulnerable. So if a player is up in the air or a player is exposed on the field and you spear that player with your helmet, that's also now a penalty. And all of that is aimed at what you said, changing the behavior, the behavioral culture of the players. And it's difficult. It's yeah, hard yeah. to do. And I think this is the, the thing that we know, you know, I, I do a lot of work in impact protection and trying to make sports equipment safer. Um, but all we can ever do is reduce the risk because actually um, you could have very, very safe equipment. But if you play in the wrong way, you can injure someone, yourself or another player by being very aggressive or, right. or, or behaving in a certain way. So as an engineer, I can't make sport safe. You know, I can reduce <laughs> its risk. But if, a, if, if an athlete wants to go and do something, you know, a bit crazy, they're going to get hurt. Right. Um, and this is where the sort of the, the legal side of it gets a bit complicated because, you know, it can get a bit, well, you know, you get, you get sued. Oh, you said if you're wearing this, you're not going to get an injury. Well, you know, if you behave in a certain way, you're going to get injured. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. Wow. And also, uh, I do have an answer for it, and that is bubble wrap. Bubble wrap. <laughs> Look into it, David. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Seriously, I mean, there's some really exciting, just, just very quick, just in terms of stuff that's happening. I mean, there's some brilliant science happening here. We're doing a lot of work in what we call, um, it's a really cool material called auxetic foams. So a conventional material, this is really, this is amazing science. A conventional material, when you, um, when you stretch that material, okay, the material gets thinner. Thinner. Right. So as, as you stretch it out, it gets thinner. Yeah. This is typically what happens. Right. Um, and that's a conventional material. It's, it's to do this thing we call a Poisson's ratio. It's a material characteristic. But anyway, an auxetic foam is a kind of a, it's a new, new idea. Um, and we can make them in foams. And what happens is when you pull that, that foam, this padding material, it doesn't get thinner. It gets fatter. So it actually grows. Wow. A, it does the opposite of what you think. And what this means is when you have an impact event, normally what happens is the material flows away from the impact location. With this material, it flows, flows towards to. right. the impact location. It's, it's really, really an amazing thing. It's called a smart material. We call it smart material. And it's, um, well, we're, we're, we're exploring that and how we can use it in helmet protection. Um, we've been looking at it for um, baseball and cycling helmets and all wow. sorts of different sports. That is cricket. fascinating. Fascinating stuff, man. Thank you for that. That's great. All right. Sean Larson here. Question from Facebook. What effect does the shape and curvature of a snowboard have on its efficiency or path of travel down a hill? It's a, well, again, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, it's, a bit, it's a bit complicated, actually. Um, so what, what happens is the main thing that slows a, a snowboard down is the, is the friction between the snow and, uh, and the board. And actually, that, that friction is independent of the contact area. So this is what science says. So it doesn't matter how big it is or how small it is, you'll always get the same frictional force. Because as the, as, the, as, the, as, the, as the contact area gets smaller, the pressure gets bigger, so you get more resistive force. As the, as the contact area bigger, the pressure gets less, and you get less resistive force. So the two kind of balance, always balance each other out. Um, so actually, the, the thing that determines how fast your snowboard goes is the, is the friction between the, the, the snow and the board. And the only real way you're going to make that to go lower is by having a low friction, like, like waxing the board. 
um, or, or using other silicones or sprays on the board to, to improve the or reduce the friction. That's something we've also looked at, kind of having almost like injectors of putting like almost like kind of uh, lubricants on the like a snail, to make it faster. like a snail. Um, you turn the board into a snail. You have the you have yeah, the lubricant yeah, so come can, out of the board, of almost like have kind of uh, like I can't have forgotten what, what it was now. It was going on a bit to, to try and reduce that coefficient of friction. But it's not really to do with the shape. It's to do with the, the friction between the two sets. Cool, man. Wow, that was cool. Now, since you said that, let me ask you a, just a follow-up question just for out of curiosity's sake. What is, uh, what's your favorite sport with uh, respect to uh, Newtonian physics? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Okay. Uh, I love the pole vaults, actually. Oh. Um, so uh, I think the pole vault is pretty amazing. It's an amazing thing that people do to, to do that this kind of incredible gymnastic maneuver at six meters in the air is just totally extraordinary but there's an incredible bit of physics behind it right so bear with me i'll, I'll try and take this through really quickly mm -hmm. basically what, what you have is the pole vault's all about translating um kinetic energy running yep. into potential energy which is about height so it some might call it gravitational energy which is how high you can go so you're, you're going, you, you move, you're turning movement into height. And of course, at the top of the jump, you have no speed. You've, re you've reached a zero velocity and you've just turned all your energy into height. So you can do a calculation, right, which goes, well, what is a theoretical maximum speed I could run at? Okay, so you take Usain Bolt. Okay, how fast can he run at? So he can run at like 10 meters a second when he's sprinting, you know, 10, me 10, 10 second, 100 meter sprint. Running at full speed, you can calculate how much energy that athlete would have, right? If they do the perfect jump, they can use turn all that kinetic energy into gravitational energy. And what that does is it means you can calculate how high they could theoretically go with perfect technique if you had the perfect athlete running at full speed as fast as Usain Bolt could run. And what it turns out is that that height is like six meters 40, okay, okay. which isn't that much higher than the current world record at six meters 18, I think it is. Wow. And so what we've happened is pole vaulters have reached a ceiling of physics. They, they can't go any higher because they just don't, there's no way of putting more energy into the system. So they've kind of, physics has put us uh, like a limit on how high they could jump. And really you have to do things like reduce gravity to go any higher. Or would it be that somebody like you and your team would come along and engineer a pole that would be able to transfer more of that energy yeah, to increase the height? Bit, but even, even if you're transferring all of it, uh, you've still got a limit. You've, you've still, you've got, still a limit. got a limit. Wow. You have to put more energy into the system to go any higher. Would you, do you improve footwear? Do you improve the running surface? Would that affect? Wouldn't do anything. You can do. You, you come up against the hard rule of physics, which is you can't, you know, energy has to go somewhere. And in this case, you're turning all the kinetic energy into gravitational energy. And that determines a maximum height. Nice. Maximum height. All right. So here we go. follow up we're, we're almost there. We're almost there. Um, right. This, this is definitely some, a name that's going to get mangled. Fed D. Gab Baldon from Instagram. You want to have another stab at that? Uh, forget about them. Forget, oh, about, forget them. about them. <laughs> Everyone's a comic. <laughs> Even you. <laughs> what? So, so here, Professor. See, that's why Chuck and I are great double act. 
I can't read. Uh, For how long will athletes keep breaking records until they get to a biological limit in which they can't improve anymore? Will that cause the introduction of sort of biomechanical sports or athletes? Hmm. Good question. Great question. Um, We've got some great listeners. We've been looking at this as well, like a lot of how, you know, performances are changing over time. And in in all sports, what we're seeing is uh, every year, uh, performances, well, most sports, they go up a little bit, uh, but the rate of increase is slowing. And, and if the rate of increase is slowing, it, it indicates that at some point it will reach a limit when it won't get any more. Um, in some sports, we've seen no improvements in performance since the 1980s. Um, take female athletics. Mm-hmm. Okay, A lot of those 1980s world records are not being broken. And in fact, current performances are significantly slower than those those performances in in, in the 1980s, and I think there's you, know, you can talk about you know issues around doping mm-hmm. around that. I think that's yes. a very valid discussion to have. Um, but but yeah, sure. I think humans will reach. There will be limits. Um, that's to say, you know, we, we shouldn't reduce what we think is possible. Uh, if you take a case of middle distance running, okay, in um, in you know, uh, ten years ago, maybe fifteen years ago. We were seeing no improvements in performance in, say, the 10,000 meters or marathons or anything like this. And then what happened was a new population started to compete. Uh, East African runners started competing and performances really started to to go up. So um, actually what I'm saying there is that sport, although we live in a globalized society, not every corner of the globe is able to compete in all sports. And actually, as more countries develop, and able, are able to participate in sport, we might find that new populations enter those sports and performances will increase. So that's something to look forward to. So I'm, I'm, I, I, when we see, oh yeah, this is going to be the human limit, I'm a little bit, well, let's, let's just be a bit cautious about that because you never know. Um, and sure, you know, um, when those limits are reached, who knows what we want to do in sport? People like progress. And yeah, maybe, maybe there will be some, some changes or maybe sport will change or maybe we'll be more interested in these more complex sports, maybe like football and soccer, um, basketball, which aren't quite so deterministic. Hmm. So do you ever foresee a time that when it comes to human performance improvement, that we would integrate the technology directly into the athlete? For instance, a chip that might perhaps increase your production of adrenaline or that uh, actually stops you from producing uh, malolactic acid after your year, stuff like that. Could you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you're getting into the, into the realms of, I suppose, what's called transhumanism. So um, as, you know, we start to develop, integrate the technology, change our bodies, in different ways, um, yeah, I can I can totally see that happening. It's it's kind of happening somewhat already, you know. Um, if a hundred years ago, if you'd said that a child being born today is almost certainly going to live to a hundred, that would be considered to be completely crazy. And so, in a hundred years' time, you know, things might be very different for for the humanity as well. And um, you know, that sounds a bit science fiction, but you know what? Science fiction is becoming science fact in a lot of places, in a lot of aspects of our of our lives. Um, so yeah, I think I think all these things can can are possible. I think the you know the, there are big big ethical debates about whether we want it, um, what it means to be human, and um, 
And who would have access and who wouldn't? You know, uh, these things can come at a cost. Certain nations start, you know, they start building almost like these super athletes. And, it, you know, that starts getting a bit crazy. So I think there's big political, ethical um, debates to have around that. Cool. Yes. Um, well, that is our show. Oh, Professor man. David James, thank you, you so much. Such a pleasure to talk to you, yeah, man. You're, uh, you're fantastic. Chuck? Yeah. Who, do you now realize that from maybe 1980 to now, mm -hmm. so much has changed? Absolutely. There's so much more appliance of science, so much more technology in play that you don't quite realize is there. So, uh, yeah, it's... it's uh, <laughs> It's pretty cool when you I find know. people like Professor developing He's fantastic. and making things happen. And I didn't even get a chance to ask him about drag force. Good. Right, that's <laughs> been Playing With Science. I've been Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And there's no drag force here. No, uh, look forward to your company next time. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.